Hello and welcome to episode 156 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and today I am joined by absolutely no one at the moment. Um, so James is away today, uh, but don't worry, in just a minute here, uh, we have recorded a previous interview with Gil Mendelsis. Uh, me, James, uh, sat down with Gil and... For those of you who don't know, Gil founded Triana back in 2000 and was the CEO of EBS BrokerTech for four years before stepping down to eventually uh, co-found and had a startup called Capitolis. Uh, we hit on a wide range of subjects, including what it was like to create a fintech startup, or I guess a startup back in uh, 2000 versus today and what some of the key challenges are that are facing the FX market. Again, I'm not gonna talk much, uh, but very quickly, just a couple quick news stories that you might find interesting. Uh, first, the recently proposed Members Exchange, otherwise known as Memex, uh, finally has put a face to its name as Jonathan Kellner will be taking over as CEO. You may remember that Kellner was previously the CEO of Instanet, he left that agency broker to become managing director of crypto exchange Coinbase's, um, what was it, the, uh, hold on, here, look here, their institutional coverage group, but that ship sank before it even left the harbor. Um, for whatever reason, the uh, Coinbase folks decided that they weren't going to look to appeal to the institutional crowd um, and stick with its roots, I guess. Uh, so that kind of left in the great game of musical chairs that left uh, Kellner just standing there, but I guess not for long, right? Uh, so Kellner will be taking over um, as CEO of Memex. And we, this is something I've been rumored. We I had actually heard about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, sadly, we couldn't get I couldn't get uh, three legit sources to back up the finding, thus just denying me the 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 opportunity to go on Twitter and scream out scoop, as though doing my job is something special. Um, anyway, uh, James and I wrote a fairly long piece after Memex was announced, detailing uh, why it will face an uphill battle establishing itself in what is already a, a very crowded U.S. stock exchange markets. Um, we'll link to that, and we also talked about it on here on the podcast as well. So I guess we'll link to both those if you want to go back and listen and get caught up. I personally have my doubts as to just how serious this exchange is. Big Wall Street firms want lower market data fees. Is that really a good reason to start a whole new marketplace, thus creating even more fragmentation? Um, or is this something that will only that will start only to get sold? off in the future once it gets off the ground. These are things that we'll see, but this is something that we'll be following closely um, and their progress going forward closely. So if you have any thoughts or hear anything, uh, my line is always open. Feel free to reach out. There was one other people move that I wanted to hit on and talk about. Uh, State Street Corporation, the mothership, uh, is named Lou Mayuri as its chief operating officer. Lou was previously head of State Street's global markets and exchange business lines. Uh, again, we'll link to the story because there were several other moving pieces involved in this, I guess, a restructure. I don't know if, it's, if that's a proper word, but a bunch of people moved around in the organization that uh, might have an interest to you folks at home in the capital market space. But as was pointed out in the press release, um, they said that Lou was, quote, instrumental in the company's recent acquisition of Charles River Development as part of its front-to-back investment servicing platform strategy. And indeed, uh, we wrote, James and I wrote uh, a, a very lar long feature uh, detailing uh, what this consolidation in the OMS space, further consolidation in OMS space, would mean to market participants. And, you know, he spoke with us uh, for that story, uh, explaining why this will allow State Street to better help customers manage a challenging trading marketplace by creating a more powerful front-to-back experience for them. And again, we'll link to that story. But I uh, personally uh, think that by putting Lou into such a, a prominent position at the company speaks volumes about how they envision its growth plans going forward with CRDPs playing a very big role in that and how it reaches out to the buy side um, and, and just other chief operating officers just throughout the industry, I guess. Um, now, that was probably obvious, right? You know, you, you don't make a $2.6 billion um, uh, purchase of a stalwart buy-side OMS provider like this 
and not expect them to play a huge piece in your revenue, your future revenue growth. But, you know, as my dad often said to me when I was growing up, you know, show me my friends and I'll show you who you are. You know, maybe maybe he uh, said that because, you know, he wanted me to go off play with my friends so he could go out to the bar. I don't know. But I think it does show that if you were having second thoughts about the acquisition – or that things maybe aren't weren't going as smoothly. I don't think that then Lou becomes is is named to that uh, prominent of a position. So again, that'll be something interesting to watch going forward. See how State Street integru- in, uh, implements, you know, whatever uh, CRD into its uh, offering, and see how the buy side reacts uh, to that implementation. Um, okay, enough of my stupid opinions. Let's get an actual expert on here. Up next is Gil Mandelsis. And we will see you back here next week with a new guest and perhaps a preview of FIA book. All right, thank you. And now we are here with Gil Mendelsis, uh, formerly with EBS Broker Tech, uh, co-founder of Triana. Today, uh, heads up a startup called Capitolis. Uh, Gil, thanks for being here today. Good afternoon. Great for thanks for having me. Absolutely. And why don't you just say for you're obviously well known in the industry. You've been around the industry for a long time. Why don't you kind of give us a little bit of, just describe yourself a little bit, your, your experience in the industry, and then talk to us a little bit about Capitals, what it is, the market it serves, things like that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the history started around 2000, uh, which is relevant to the fintech industry. It started around 2000, where I uh, started uh, Triana, uh, which was... Uh, basically a, a company that operates in the post-trade world. If you think about institutional FX trading, um, the world did not operate with a prime broker uh, back then, so it was a bunch of bilateral trades. It's a little bit like the world was operating on the consumer end before credit cards. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a little bit of, of manual work being done in the industry, and uh, we believed that um, the world should move to a credit card model or clearing model in an OTC environment uh, and we decided to automate that, um, and we were able to both uh, uh, catch a meaningful wave uh, or create a meaningful wave. But lo and behold, within the following uh, decade, foreign exchange prime brokerage moved from practically 0% of the market to uh, about uh, anywhere between 30 and 40% of the FX market. Triana uh, processed an immense amount of uh, both transactions as well as notional value and then expanded into additional asset classes. So this was fun and trying to became a very dominant player. Ultimately was acquired by uh, ICAP in 2007. And then um, to my shock, I stayed with ICAP uh, (laughs) for the following eight or nine years. Never had the, uh, I never thought it's going to happen, but uh, I joined this organization, uh, joined the, had the opportunity to join the executive team, worked very closely with Michael Spencer. And, um, you know, Michael was able to keep entrepreneurs around them and give us a lot of opportunity to just keep running our dreams and keep operating as entrepreneurs. And it just became more and more fun. And I've done that for a few more years and Triana really has grown under ICAP. Um, after which I moved to the execution side uh, kind of overnight and started running initially EBS, which was really kind of a a problematic time in the history, uh, which was well covered in the history of both the FX market and specifically EBS. We uh, were able to um, do great things at EBS and really change the, the company which led to basically uh, my appointment to run electronic markets for ICAP, which included for the most part EBS and Brokertech. And I've done that for another uh, few years. And it was an amazing run and a lot of fun. Um, and then and then I started, real. first of all, I had a good understanding of both the post-trade as well as the execution side. Sure. So this was a really cool place to understand and to see what are the what is the effect of the real of the of the changes in regulation mm. and it dawned on me that while a lot of the people in the industry I would say most people in the industry were trying to interpret the regulations 
and trying then to adjust and accommodate to that, including new financial technology companies or technology initiatives that were focused on automating to the current regulation. And what became very clear to me was that there is a need to completely reinvent and rethink the industry. Okay. This is such a big change. I would argue this is either the biggest change since the invention of money mm -hmm. or as big a change as the invention of electronic trading. It's this big, oh, it's you know, if, if not the biggest. Around, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but, but so, so with such a big change, um, there has to be, well, obviously a big crisis, but there has to be really big opportunities and a way to rethink the industry. And sort of I, I started seeing the solution in my mind and it really kept me up awake at night. And I was trying to avoid this because I was, I was trying to not think about that because I was having so much fun at ICAP. Yeah. And I was, you know, had a big office and, you know, <laughs> there was a lot to grow and a lot to do with this. I had an amazing team. Uh, and, uh, but in the end, I was like, look, I, I just got to do it. So, um, so here we are. So that's, uh, so that's the history. I, I'm sorry, because I remember yeah. when we first spoke uh, after you started, and we'll link to that article, um, you said that you'd spoken with, uh, what was it, Tom Gloser and yes. uh, Igor uh, Teleshevsky, yes. if I'm getting yeah. name right. Absolutely. Uh, and that you would kind of just start kicking us around. So it's just kind of like, all right, I have this idea. Am I, am I being stupid right now? Do, do I actually yeah. have something here? And they were, I guess they were like, yeah, I guess, yeah, go for it. Yeah, let's see what yeah. happens. <laughs> yeah, so it was, uh, you know, I spoke to, I spoke to Tom Gloser, who is, uh, you know, Tom and Igor are obviously co-founders, and Tom, uh, who used to run Thomson Reuters, and, and is just, uh, you know, a really close friend and just an incredible, uh, incredibly smart uh, uh, and very experienced uh, guy, but then I also, you know, I came back to Sequoia Capital, who funded me at Triana, and they were very close uh, partners. And I sat with them, and I was like, you know, I was looking for people to tell me that I'm completely insane. <laughs> um, and uh, incredibly, you know, and, and other people in the industry. Um, and uh, but the direction, which I guess we'll talk about in a second, but but the direction as on the one hand, super audacious, right? So we are trying to basically do to the capital markets industry what Airbnb has done to hospitality and what Uber has done to transportation. Um, and I don't know, maybe WhatsApp is doing to communications. So, so to, this extent, to a certain extent, it's like incredibly and insanely audacious. But at the same time, it's so simple and it's really necessary. And, uh, and this is what we're experiencing in Capitolis nowadays. So yes, we did, I did go out, of course, to, I was struggling with this for a while. And, and f there were times where I was just having so much fun in what I was doing that I was like, look, forget about this. This is yeah. too much fun. We've done an amazing deal in China that I was working with Michael Spencer, my team at, at EBS for four years. And it, it was, it's really a revolutionary deal. Like we've done really big things. Um, we introduced at EBS at one point uh, speed bumps, and that was all around the algo world. And by the way, I, I just read today um, that people are thinking about that in the future as well. As well, so yeah, we're dealing with like really, uh, like these were really interesting and and things that mattered, right? So I had a lot of satisfaction. I was really trying to do everything possible to avoid starting a company again. By the way, it's a little bit like having, like my first company is a little bit like having a first child. Mm -hmm. You're totally traumatized. Yeah. And uh, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Continue, you make so many mistakes <laughs> and it was so painful. The outcome was great and it's a great story to tell and, and, and remember, um, but it was very traumatic. Sure. So I was like, I'm never doing this again, like <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Uh, but here we are, and two years later, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that I have this experience. Um, so, yeah, so talk to a lot of people, well, a lot, talk to quite a few people in the industry and mentors that I've had throughout the years. Uh, and overall, I think people really liked the direction um, and thought that, you know, if we're going to try to do something, we might as well try to do something really big that would make a, a big change, but also a really good and profoundly healthy change for the industry. So 
So here we are. And it seemed to kind of work out, I guess, at the right time for you, because, you know, you're worried about leaving behind the ICAP good days, obviously it became next, and now it's part of CME. Yeah, so, it's, yeah it's, it's, uh, it is, yeah. it is, um, it is funny uh, like that, but listen, it was, uh, look, Michael Spencer is amazing. Uh, he's done a good deal in selling the voice brokering business. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously EBS Broker Tech uh, and our post-trade businesses, Triana, Trioptima, are incredible assets yeah. and were very attractive. So, but certainly it was a good time for me. It was a good time. Um, I would say I'm hoping I'm not going to jinx it, but just apropos timing. When we started Triana, we signed the first term sheet in April of 2000. Mm -hmm. So April of 2000. So, and we raised over the following six months around $7.5 million. Now, we were very lucky because... If we started the company six months or a year earlier, we would have run out of money. Right. <laughs> if we started it like four months later, there would be no money, right? <laughs> and then we sold the company, like we, we closed the deal in December of 07. Mm -hmm. you know? And there were a few bidders for the company, but like oh, yeah. six months later, there was no money, no money in the industry. Right, so exactly, timing yeah. was good, and I think timing was very good this time as well. So you know, we're, um, I do pray a lot. So, so much of it's know. still you know, luck and good fortune, Absolutely. I guess, plays a lot into it. 100%. So, because that's, I guess, one of the interesting things, I think, is what was it, what, what is the fintech world like? You know, you started this company, Triana, you know, almost 20 years ago. What is it like starting a company? What are kind of the main differences uh, in the fintech space around you know acquiring um, talent, signing contracts, things like that? Yeah. Um, so I think there are a lot of differences. I think it's a very, very different world to uh, the way it is today. So if you go back 20 years, I would say, first of all, fintech does not, to a certain extent, did not exist. I mean, obviously, people did have um, technology solutions and companies, but by and large, the venture capital world hated anything that has to do with financial technology. And yeah. the, by and large, people told you, A, I don't know anything about this, and B, there, nobody develops ever like big companies in financial technology yeah. space. So basically, you're going to develop a $50 million company, SunGuard is going to acquire you for the, for the cash flow, and that's going to be or the FIS end of it. Right, <laughs> yeah, well, but that, that, that was earlier on. SunGuard was the acquirer, sure, yeah. you know, sure, yeah. the acquirer yeah. in the industry, right? Um, and the banks were very active, so one way to build big companies was to get the banks to make strategic investments. At the time, they were much more active. You think about TradeWeb, and you think about BrokerTech, and you think about EBS, and you think about Market. That generation, a lot of the most successful companies were actually funded by the banks, so it wasn't kind of a VC-led industry. So there was not a lot of money that was invested in this industry, at least so far as the really smart money. Not that the banks are not smart money, very smart, but, but a lot of the smart money from Silicon Valley um, did not come to New York. VC in New York did not exist, and London. Yeah. You know, there was really no, no VC industry sure. in these areas, which also sort of, uh, you know, they don't like to travel fast. Uh, to travel, they like to travel fast, they don't like to travel far. Um, so that was a meaningful limiting factor. So I would say that's the first thing, which is just so different nowadays because everybody loves fintech nowadays. And still, by the way, people are um, not as comfortable in capital markets as they are in, so people talk a lot about fintech. Obviously, there is a lot of work that's being done around cyber that's related to finance, um, obviously payments, peer-to-peer -peer yeah. lending, um, e-insurance, uh, robo advisor, yeah. uh, advisor and, and th this is more on the retail side. So capital markets is not, even that in fintech is not that uh, prevalent, but certainly much more uh, than it used to be. So that's one big difference. The other one is the banks are very different. So the banks, first of all, I, I remember in 2002, Deutsche Bank was our first client and we sold a hosted ASP solution. <laughs> and a lot of people said, look, we don't, we just don't do this thing. Yeah. Like what, we don't know how to like, it's just how do you mean? Send me the software, yeah. and yeah. I know what to do with that. Yeah. And you send me release notes and the whole thing, uh, let alone software as a service, let alone network solutions. 
Um, and and nowadays we're talking about Amazon, which still some of the banks are struggling, like they're not fully, uh, they don't know exactly how to fully assess companies that are on, on the cloud. So to that extent, the industry is a completely different industry. And I think banks are much more comfortable in viewing themselves as part of an ecosystem where they work with a lot of the capabilities that are sitting outside the bank and they're working in collaboration with them. They're much more open-minded, they're much more inviting. Every bank will have at least group, one group and usually and sometimes multiple groups whose role is to understand what's happening outside and to find ways to invite you into the bank and find ways to work more closely with the banks did not used to exist at all. Used to need to bang on doors and, and uh, it was uh, it was much harder at the time. Mm. So I would say everything in this sense, to that extent, is easier than it used to be. It also helps that overall, I would say, in terms of the venture industry, um, when you look at value of companies, exits, whichever way you're going to measure it, and it's true for finance and outside fintech, are much higher than they used to be. So people can invest more. People can think larger, think bigger about building real companies, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, so all of this is is very exciting. The one difference, the one other difference, um, which would make it, uh, I'd say, on the negative side, is there are significant. The industry has gone through incredible consolidation. If you think about the last 10, 20 years, I mean, you mentioned sure. FIS, Sungard. Uh, Think about how many exchanges used to exist 20 years ago. Mm. And now, you know, CME is, I think, $80 billion or $70 billion, an amazing company, but they're huge. You have far fewer exchanges. You have far fewer electronic platforms. You have dramatically fewer banks on the back of the financial crisis, et cetera. So to that extent, while you could have built, um, you know, it, it does two things. Uh, it limits or it reduces the number of, of participants in the industry period, and the participants that exist have more um, have more power. But at the same time, I do think that there is a very meaningful void in terms of innovation in the mm-hmm. industry. Because if you look at the growth of a lot of the exchanges, the growth of some of the banks, a lot of the uh, industry participants, the larger ones, um, they used to be much more innovative in the past. And they have basically grown through acquisitions. Uh, and people are either acquired or acquiring or both. Um, that leaves tremendous room, I believe, for disruptive innovation to come from new companies. I think there is, there is this uh, middle uh, of the market right now, which is just craving for scalable innovation and companies that would be, on the one hand, with a little bit of scale, but at the same time, know how to move fast and how to bring the industry uh, the industry together. I would say another thing that's missing in the industry is the banks used to work much more closely together. And I think on the back of some of the things that have happened in the industry, banks are more cautious and apprehensive about getting together and saying, oh, let's do something. We're going to innovate together. We're going to have this body or another. Um, so they're very disciplined and they're very cautious and they're, they're very mindful about this. But I mean, again, in terms of what, the, so the libel scandal, or in terms of failed technology projects, or no, not failed technology projects at all. It's more, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, this is this is too close to to a oh, variety sure. of homes. So I I don't want to. But mm-hmm. yes, there's been a variety of scandals right. or near scandals or lawsuits or all of this stuff, and and I think bankers are just saying, you know, this is just too close to home and this is too scary. And therefore, there is actually incredible opportunity for companies who are sort of independent companies that are gathering the industry around them and are taking leadership positions in trying to lead innovation that's collaborative innovation in the industry. There is tremendous room for that. Yeah. Um, and the companies that are doing that, I mean, you know, shout out to a company called Access Fintech uh, started by Roy Sadon, who was one of my co-founders at Triana, and they just announced uh, an investment from, um, I think it was Goldman, um, J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse, and Citi, right? So here is an innovative company that is able to look at an industry problem and bring participants together. I think sure. there is a real void in the industry nowadays, mm-hmm. which can be filled by, uh, uh, by technology companies. So overall, I think it's really good news 
for fintech and for innovation and innovative companies in the industry. So, I mean, speaking of innovative companies, you likened what you guys are doing at Capitolis yep. to what kind of the disruption that's happened in other sectors. So yep. why don't we just um, take a few minutes to talk about exactly what it is you guys sure. do and how you're doing that. I think Absolutely. So, look, the, the, if you... So I've studied uh, a lot of what was happening in... I'm, I'm, I'm fascinating with this platform economy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anywhere from Zipcar to Airbnb, actually, to a certain extent, Google's uh, victory over Yahoo had to do with the fact that this was, you know, at Yahoo, people used to, at least that's what I read, people, the bottleneck was Yahoo people deciding how to categorize yeah. certain uh, categories or, or, or searches or, when, when you, or certain pages. And Google allowed the industry to do that in a highly collaborative model, and they were able, therefore, to scale much faster. So there was, you know... So curation rather than dictation. Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. So there has been incredible innovation. I would argue, to a certain extent, you know, I remember in 2000 when I started Triana, there were, we were the only fintech company in the portfolio. So I used to go to LP meetings of my venture capital firms, they love to show us as like the freaky other thing that we're doing. And then, so I, I, see, I saw back then a lot of uh, dealer to client advertising startups. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was 2000. And I was thinking to myself, you know, basically this, in, like this internet game is over, mm-hmm. right? You had eBay, you had Yahoo, you had uh, PayPal or they were starting. It was basically, I, I was thinking like the D2C, the B2C world is just over. And now you fast forward 15 years and the biggest innovations coming out of the internet and the biggest successes actually just started, you know, they came out 10, 15, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. If you think about Uber and Airbnb and WhatsApp and, and all of those business model changes, there are less technologies and there are more business model changes that are not using the technology to completely rethink the, the industry. And for me, first of all, it is incredibly exciting and it was exciting to learn about them, but I had this incredible feeling that the, our industry really needs that. So if you think about what is happening in our industry on the back of the financial crisis, basically the banking industry since the invention of money followed a pretty simple business model. The banks and this whole capital markets industry was really all about capital. So banks needed more and more capital. They wanted to put their hands on more and more deposits that then they could lever and basically put to work in the capital markets world. They effectively gave a lot of this capital for free to uh, their clients. It was not properly priced, that, that we know for sure, but they did that in order to get trading and this is where they make they made all of their money. So basically, it was these were trading machines, mm-hmm. um, and they provided great technology and great services. I don't want to minimize that, but the game was you had to have more and more and more and more capital. And we get to a point where you actually the capital with leverage is concentrated in a few institutions on a global basis, mm-hmm. um, and a few okay, it's tens, but it's not thousands, and. Those are, as we've discovered, um, super interconnected to one another, and they're too big to fail, right? So lo and behold, we're in a situation whereby we discover this, and taxpayers need to, are asked to basically bail out uh, the banks, or not asked, but taxpayers are bailing, are, are bailing out the banks, which, um, which nobody likes. Yeah. And by the way, I also read every, I don't know about every, but a lot of the books by, you know, Geithner and, and Hank Paulson and Alan Greenspan and, you know, the, and Mervyn King, like the books about the people who really saved the world. And by the way, we, we I don't think enough, gra- like, I don't think there is enough public gratitude to those people that truly saved the world. I mean, they all deserve medals for what they've done. And I had, because of of deals we're doing with CLS at the time, spent a lot of time with at the Fed Mm -hmm. and uh, during that time. And those guys, like you, they met with us in the middle of the week. And over the weekends, they saved the world. And we read about it every Monday, right? And they were like working so hard. And it's like, it's unbelievable. Like, these are true superheroes. In any event, 
So nobody likes to bail out. Like banks don't like to be bailed out. And by the way, really like, you know, so nobody nobody likes that, whether you're Republican or Democrat. This is not, turns out it's not very popular and it's not very good. And by the way, we really need the financial system to be held. So regulations come in, stress tests, and a variety of regulations all over the world. And their two goals are uh, A, to make sure that banks are now going to be smaller independently and less connected, right? Such that you don't have those domino effects. And the regulations were built as opposed to, you know, ideas that I was just, oh, you, you're just not allowed to do one, two, three, and four. They're actually very, uh, I guess, cleverly put together such that through economics, banks had to A, deleverage, and B, their capital is on a uh, comparative basis is uh, more expensive. Yeah. And the bigger you get, the more capital you have to set aside. So effectively, the bigger you get, the more the capital becomes more expensive. I mean, especially when you get into things like, you know, the treatment of margin, the leverage ratio. And absolutely, kind of well. absolutely. And there are a lot of regulations that have already been implemented, but there are a lot that are still ahead of us and will mm -hmm. be implemented or will be or have been implemented, but did not necessarily trickle down to the trader level. So when you look at those large banks uh, and the largest banks in the world, and, and or, or by the way, it's true also for regional banks, it depends where you meet those constraints, but they have unbelievable capabilities from a servicing origination perspective. They have global presence. A lot of things that people that look at the retail world don't necessarily appreciate. You know, the value that a JP Morgan, Goldman, City, Barclays, like whatever name we're going to use has in having papered, you know, being papered with a gazillion counterparties mm -hmm. is such a huge asset. Mm -hmm. Being connected to every exchange and every clearing corporation, having invested billions of dollars in servicing your clients. It's all this stuff is super scalable, cannot be replicated, and something that every client would want to have access to in theory. So the good news is, on the back of the financial crisis, is that the banks are safer. They are much safer. Mm -hmm. I think the entire system is much safer, and we can all sleep really well at night. I'm being asked about you know, whether I have similar concerns and whether a similar financial crisis can occur. I sleep really, really well. I think that you know, we're in a really safe place. Um, and there is more that's happening, but you know, the banks together, like the financial industry, together with the regulators and the central banks, I think have done an amazing job and we're in a much better place. The bad news is that as a result of that, a lot of clients don't have access to the best solutions that are out there. And actually, in some places, it really does hurt liquidity. Mm -hmm. And if I believe that some of the areas where we've seen semi-flash crashes, flash rallies, etc., have to do with the fact that the banks have basically shrunk their balance sheet. They don't hold as much inventory as they used to, and, and they had to get out of businesses, raise fees, etc. So basically, the world is safer, but liquidity has been harmed and clients have been harmed. So you have clients, so you have basically fundamentally the banks that have unlimited uh, capacity from a processing perspective with great tools, but now less capital than they used to have. And at the same time, you have way too much capital all over the world, and we see that in every industry, in VC and in the, the venture industry, but in any industry, too much capital looking for yield that can understand a lot of those issues, but will never have access to the same, uh, to, to those uh, opportunities, mm -hmm. right? And to the, the capabilities and infrastructure and global presence that the large banks have. And I don't think it's realistic that anybody would build it. I'll just pause here for a second and use the analogy that Tom Glosser, my partner, is using in this sense, and that's the hotel industry. So if you go back 20, 30, 50 years, if you're Four Seasons or Marriott, you did two things. You knew how to run hotels and how to develop branding around the hotels and how to train staff and so on and so forth, but you also owned your hotels. Mm -hmm. So you're really bound from a growth perspective by your capital and by your ability, A, to be smart about deploying it, but also just how much capital that you had. And then the industry changed in that there was, was a complete separation between the management companies and the real estate. So nowadays, you know, you guys will publish this podcast. It's going to make tons of money. 
you're going to buy a hotel <laughs> down here, and then you could call a few uh, companies that are management companies, and they will bid, right? And they will manage it for you. So there is separation between the capital and the management. Right. And we believe that this is exactly the philosophy that can be applied to the capital markets world. Okay. So clearly, all of the large banks can do much, much more business, and there is much more demand for their services than necessarily their capital uh, and balance sheet can uh, afford or cost. Mm -hmm. And through a collaborative model, we view that the future of the industry, the banks will choose where they deploy their capital, and that's always going to happen. But we can find them, basically an extension of their balance sheet is going to be the market at large, yeah. on demand. And the beauty of this is, it's not just about effects, it's true for any, and we're seeing use cases for anything that banks do. And by the way, a as opposed to a lot of what was happening pre-crisis, we're talking about vanilla, you know, we're talking about G10 effects, we're talking about, you know, about cash like S&P, 500 equity. So these are, we're talking about very simple vanilla instruments where we could find good partners through collaborative models um, that are going to partner with the large banks around the origination and the capital. And when this happens, basically, the banks will be able to grow very profitably and with in incredible return on capital. People with capital will have billions of uh, trillions of new of dollars of new investment opportunities where they can deploy their capital the um, for clients they're going to have the best of all worlds they'll have access to the best servicing in the world uh, by the large banks with the cheapest and a lot of more capital and from a regulatory perspective we think this is terribly exciting because a it helps propagate the risk throughout the market to entities that don't need to be bailed out if something goes wrong and at the same time it really helps liquidity so if we just take a step back for a second, we would say two things. A, there are tremendous inefficiencies in the industry today in the sense that through novations and netting and compression opportunities and clearing and so on and so forth, first of all, the industry looks much more, much bigger and uh, with significantly bigger notionals and with significantly bigger risk than it really is. So A, we can use technology and collaborative solutions to just reflect truly what is the real size of the industry, which is dramatically less risky and, uh, uh, and dramatically uh, less uh, large from a notional otherwise perspective than it really is. So A, there are tremendous efficiencies in just basically managing and reflecting better what is the overall size of the industry and the risk in the industry and so on and so forth. But then beyond that, through collaborative solutions, so okay, you bring it to the right level, then through collaborative solutions, the industry can grow much, much, uh, uh, much bigger, much faster, much safer from where we are into a different business model uh, that we have today. Fascinating. So, so the risk doesn't go onto the bank's books on some end of your models, what you're saying is the capital gets deployed and then therefore doesn't attract a capital charge from right so two things so first of all yeah. even the risk that is on the bank's books today is inflated in how it's represented there is significantly less risk yeah. uh, so there are a lot of things that can be done to just basically bring this to reality yeah. um, but the second thing is yes we can find partners it's it depends on what is the risk sometimes the banks will retain some risk mm -hmm. but we'll find partners sometimes um, people Sometimes the banks will take one part of the risk and, and the other part of it or the hedge part will come from other people. So the beauty of a platform and the way we think about the world is there's going to be infinite number of ideas that are out there. So yeah. we're deploying today some ideas that are ours. And I'm, you know, you can't see it on a pod podcast, but I'm using, um, you know, air quotes. Uh, <laughs> When I'm saying that, because we really don't have, I don't even know what ideas are ours, right? A lot of the things that we're deploying came from, you know, using theories and trying to implement them. And then the client said, oh, you know, I could really use it here. And that's sort of our experience every day. Like four times this week, we got calls from large banks and, and, and some large, um, in this case, a couple of hedge funds that said, hey, you know, we're thinking about this and if we could really like deploy this and, and do this. 
And the answer is, you know, quite often, yes, this is a great idea and this is another use case. So there's going to be every idea that you can think of. We're restricting ourselves only to um, institutional investors. Mm -hmm. So we're not dealing with the retail world. We need qualified investors. We need people who are regulated and know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to make the world better and safer while doing this, right? So we're not, there's no, there's no accounting mumbo profit, jumbo here <laughs> for profit. Profit is legal, I think, still, right? It's like, um, and it's a good thing. Um, so we're trying to do not just legal, but actually following the spirit of the regulation. We're trying to do we're trying to do something that's good. So there's no accounting mumbo jumbo in what we do. Everything is fully funded. When something is off the books of a bank. It's truly off the books of the of a bank, and it's truly funded with hard cash or hard obligations of an entity that is qualified, etc. So we're we're very um, I'd say religious around that, um, but um, but um, the so 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 there's going to be all of these models that are there, and we're coming up with some, and there's others that are coming on a weekly basis. But we're sure that there's going to be a lot of other models that will come. Some succeed, some will fail. Yeah. That's part of the beauty. But when you start thinking about this world in a lateral way, mm -hmm. right, it doesn't just have to be the capital of a bank that's going to deploy it in a, in, a, in a specific way. It goes back to our conversations around technology. Mm -hmm. You go back 20 years ago, and a lot of the technology, not just in banks, by the way, it's true for any industry, came from the large institutions. And then they said, hey, Let's open up ourselves, view ourselves more as platforms, invite the outside world to show us what they got, and we need to know how to work in collaboration with them and benefit, uh, and everybody benefits from that. We think it's exactly the same world with, uh, the same thing with uh, banking. The fact that a bank's credit decision, or to a certain extent, or to that extent, the fact that a CCP's uh, risk committee decided that this is either attractive or not, or that it should cost like this or like that, does not mean that this is, that there is, that this is the cheapest or the best price or the best risk, or the best risk management yeah. solution in the industry. Mm -hmm. So, so long as there is somebody that understands the risk and uh, that they're truly taking the risk and they're not interconnected, let's let the market decide. So one of the things that happened was the market became much, much smaller to a certain extent yeah. in terms of the decision-making. And what we're saying is, and, and this is where a lot of people were all depressed about, uh, you know, volumes are decreasing in the industry and there are fewer players and it's harder to make money and so on and so forth when you're looking at the trading industry, when you're looking at banking. And, uh, and and people did not see the huge opportunity here. Mm -hmm. True, banks will, you know, are, are not as levered as they used to be, and there are fewer banks. But in terms of savvy people that can take risks, there is tons of them. In terms of people that know how to service clients, there is enough of them. Bring them together, and you could bring infinite growth, innovation, and scale to the industry. Okay. And then uh, just one other question, and obviously Capitals isn't, you guys are more than just FX. Sure. Um, but I think with your background and for some of the listeners, maybe just kind of give us some of your insights beyond with, with what you've just obviously been talking about yep. and the solution that you sure. that you provide to the industry. What are some of the other big trends that you see in the FX space um, and either from a market structure or you know, more, maybe more for our audience, maybe how technology can help with some of this. Yeah. Where, where do you kind of see you know, the, the, ne the next ripples being in 2019, 2020 for FX? Yeah. So look, I, I would say I'm a little bit out of the day-to-day -day, uh, grind. grind of FX execution uh, and post-trade. Um, some of it is by my own design because I decided <laughs> that I'm moving elsewhere. And I would say, you know, I think that the, in general, electronic trading, um, I don't know, I'm, I might piss off or offend a lot of people, but I think that we are, th this industry has matured. And one of the reasons, so I'm an entrepreneur and at heart, that's what I do, and one of the reasons that I um, 
that I decided to look at other places in the industries because I think that's, you know, I, I, I was on the record when, when I uh, had the opportunity to join as the CEO of EBS. Uh, we said many times that we think that the world of effects is moving from a stage of innovation to a stage of integration. Mm -hmm. And if you actually look at the last decade, uh, FXL was acquired uh, by Reuters, 360T was acquired by Deutsche Börse, then they bought GTX, and if you look at EBS, when we uh, took over, basically it was a central limit order book only for two and a half spot currencies when we left, uh, when, when we left, when I left, and it's still going, very successful, but there were you know, CNH and NDFs, and there was EBS Direct, which is a direct streaming model, and there was, um, you know, Fords and Swaps, and there was a, a fixing platform, and there was a mid-in-the-middle platform, so it became sort of this Amazon or this supermarket of capabilities. So there's a lot of consolidation that has happened in the industry. Euronext, which, full disclosure, on the board of Euronext US, has acquired... Uh, uh, fast match and so on and so forth. So there's been this this integration in the industry, and even if you look at the um, at the client side, there's been tremendous um, consolidation even on the algo side. So it used to be 15 years ago you could buy a server, you'd sit in your you know your in your home wherever it is, and you found this this trade and you could make tons of money. And there's been tremendous consolidation, tremendous economies of scale. It's very expensive and it's very hard to compete. And the industry now is, you know, I'm not going to mention specific names, but there are four or five mega players that are kind of now, if you're a trader, you would go and you would they'd provide you with all of the infrastructure because the latency is just getting to low latency is so expensive and provide and so necessary, right? So to me, a lot of those trades are, are over. Um, we're looking at a mature industry where um, it will continue. I think that the race to zero from a um, latency perspective is kind of, you know, as we're getting closer to the speed of light, you know, you just become heavier and it's harder uh, to achieve uh, anything more than that. So to me, when you look at the FX industry, I think the most important things that have happened in the industry the last, few, the last decade was this consolidation. I think it's by and large done. There are all kinds of rumors and assets will switch hands, but I don't think that fundamentally there's going to be now huge different business models, uh, business model changes. The other change that was tremendously important was the uh, global code and the work that has been done with all central banks all over the world around um, uh, you know, best practices and code of conduct, et cetera, et cetera. And that has had and has a tremendous uh, positive effect on the industry. On the back of this, there are some TCA companies. And, you know, these are, these are nice things that are happening, but I don't think that they're revolutionary. So I think that from in, when you look at in, in that sense, I do not expect to see just dramatic uh, changes going on where we do think that there is um, tremendous changes that will happen are, you know, I will have to talk my book and say that the way capital affects capital and risk um, and the regulations that are associated with that and the difference between the economic capital and the regulatory capital creates an ARB that needs to be bridged. Mm -hmm. So in terms of looking you know, affecting the 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 um, the economics and and the regulations that are associated with uh, the risk and notionals and all this stuff, we're really in day zero. Yeah. You know, we're kind of if you think about trading, we're in, maybe we're in ninety five. Yeah. So right now, people do all kinds of cycles once a week, once a month, and it's truly a post trade world. We think it will come to be. There will be different models, and it will be pre-trade or at trade uh, in terms of how it's affecting the tra basically trading decisions and prices. Uh, and we're seeing that in action and we're benefiting from that. So we're, we're very excited about that. So the whole capital and risk efficiency um, will, we think is super exciting and will have meaningful effect on trading itself. 
The same thing for collaborative models around the separation between credit and balance sheet to pricing and servicing. So those are things that we're very involved in. And I think um, the two other things is, um, I think AI will play a huge role. Um, right now, we are still, I think in the very early days, we're not involved in that, but we'll, you know, I'm, 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 I see and I hear some of the things that people are playing with. AI in general is an amazing thing. And again, we are in like the, uh, you know, prehistoric days <laughs> of AI in terms of every aspect of our lives, including trading and, and including effects. Um, and effects is really interesting because it's so global and it's so diverse that I think AI will be able to do amazing things in this, uh, in this world. And then there's always the question which, uh, I have to mention for the record, just so that people are not going to say I didn't mention it, although I'm not a huge, uh, I don't spend a lot of time around the whole crypto and blockchain. Um, there seemed to be enough activity that at one point, I think, uh, not in the near future, but I do think that there is going to be effects uh, and implementation of crypto or, or uh, you know, some uh, uh, abstract uh, models um, that uh, um, of, of crypto or, or blockchain in our industry. I don't think it's close, and I don't think it's in the forms that we've seen so far. So I'm not terribly excited about blockchain yeah. as an infrastructure. Um, I am terribly unexcited about uh, Bitcoin. I think you know it's already uh, it's already uh, ended up in tears for a lot of players, but I think that you know we're just in the pregame of the horror show that will happen at one point. But I do think that the concept is super powerful, uh, and there is no doubt in my mind that the world of currencies will move from an analog world to a digital world. It has to happen, and there's going to be marvelous things that will happen with that. But I think this is more. If, if, if the first things that I talked about, I'd say, are immediate, like the category of capital efficiency and, um, and collaborative models are kind of day now or day my, like five or ten years ago leading to the future, um, AI, I think, will play a bigger role over the next, uh, I'd say, decade. And I would say figuring out digital currencies um, is perhaps a decade from now onwards. All right. Well, Gil, this was great stuff, uh, and I, we will link to the article. It's fun about Capitol. So, hey, listen, yeah. you know, hope it, this is uh, this no. Is, this is great. It's Thank always you. fun to have somebody that's you know has the history. You know, no, you know, was there. Hopefully, future as well, right? Hopefully, like future as well. <laughs> yes, yes. Ho hopefully, this doesn't lead to your decline. You exactly. Know? Hopefully, this exactly. is just uh, good things. Just still the to yeah. podcast yeah. is the, uh, <laughs> the, the curse. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to hear more from Gil, you're on the the keynote panel at Boca. Yes. Yes. We'll be there amazingly. So. Uh, you know, Sarah Balls, our, our, our uh, head of communications, has done an amazing job in, in getting us there. Well done, well done. I don't know how it was done, but, but we're there. So we're super excited to be there. And uh, yeah, definitely. Very good. Well, thanks so much, Gil. Thank you. Take care.